Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. When I, um, before I started reading this passage, I, did, I mentioned to you that, you know, it'll be good to make some observations uh, because it's really, you know, when we read our Bible every day and as we uh, you know, listen to sermons, listen to someone read the Word of God, it, 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 we get a lot more out of it when we are actually actively reading through it rather than passively listening to it. Uh, and, um, and so uh, I hope that you were able to get something out of it as you were reading along with me. But I thought there's, there's a few um, uh, patterns or some observations that I thought I'll just uh, mention before we get into the text. Um, and if you look at this psalm, this psalm almost flows like a, it's like a two-step dance. It's like a one, two, one, two, one, two. And there's so many things that, you know, that happen as it flows through uh, the, the different, ver- as it flows through this text. Um, and uh, there's a few observations with regards to this two-step dance that I talked about. Firstly, we see a repetition of similar words. Right in verse 1, we see him saying, Lord, our Lord. In verse 2, we see him say, babies and infants. We see in verse 2 also him saying, enemy and avenger. We hear him say, moon and stars. We hear him say, the man and the son of man. Some are exact words, some are repetitions of the, trying to explain the same idea. And, and oftentimes when something is re- repeated, he's trying to emphasize something. He's trying to drive home a point. You know, when we think about the word holy, 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 that's the only time it's, it's mentioned three times. Uh, and it's really driving home the point of God's holiness. And, and it's something similar. You're trying to emphasize importance for these things. Secondly, you'll, uh, you know, in that one um, two-step dance, so as to say in this passage, you'll see that David is looking up and then he looks down. He looks up, he looks down. He looks up, he looks down. In verse 1, he looks down to the earth and looks up at the heavens. In verse 3, he looks up the heavens and then verse 4, he looks down back at man on the earth. In verse 5, you know, he looks at the heavenly beings and then he looks down at creation. In verse 7, he looks at the birds in the air and then he looks at the beasts in the field. There's, there's a pattern where David just keeps looking up and down. Thirdly, an important observation that we can see is that um, as he's looking up and down, he sees the reality of God. He sees God and he sees human beings. He sees that God is up above and human beings are here below. He sees the glory of God and he sees the weakness of babies in verse 2. In verse 3, he sees the wonderful works of God and the rest of the chapter, he sees the, the, what God has done to insignificant man. A fourth observation you'll see is that uh, if you've got a, a study Bible or a cross-reference uh, um, notes in your Bible, you will see that there's a lot of New Testament references in there. And that is because this psalm has been um, used in the New Testament a few times, as quotes in the New Testament. And we will look at that as we go. And the last observation, and and the most important observation, and I hope it was obvious to everyone, is the, the repetition of the first verse at the end. Verse 1 and verse 9 is exactly the same, same verse. And that is important because that is the main point that David is trying to drive home. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now getting into the text, if you look at your Bibles, you'll notice that when he says, O Lord, our Lord, the first Lord is all capitalized. It's, it's all in capitals and the second Lord has 
uh, L in capitals. Now, the, the first word for Lord in there comes from the Hebrew word Yahweh. It comes from the Hebrew word Yahweh, uh, which is basically the name of God that is mostly used in the Old Testament. It's basically um, God Yahweh, the God who has revealed himself to his covenant people. God who has revealed himself. This God who is eternal. This God who is self-existent. This God who is sovereign. This God who is above all. It, it also has the idea of God by himself. Nothing to do with man in that sense, but the very essence of God in his holiness, in his other than us that sets him apart from every other being. And this references the very title of God as a supreme and self-existent God who is the great I am. In some Jewish traditions, the name Yahweh was so sacred that they would not even mention it. They would not even utter the name Yahweh. That was how much of uh, significance and sacredness that name had. In, 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 there are some historians that say if they wrote down the name Yahweh, they would not rub it off. It was almost considered as too sacred a name to be rubbed off or to be erased from a piece of paper. And, and that was the prominence and that was the importance of the word Yahweh. And so he's, David here is saying, O Lord, our Lord. O Yahweh, our Lord. That second Lord um, is translated from the word Adonai. Now the Adonai is a word that was used that was more, uh, I suppose, uh, relatable in the sense that it was a word that referred to the a master-servant relationship that God had with his people. It referred to the God-child relationship. Uh, it, it referred to a relationship that God had with his people, with his covenant people. And so David here says, O Lord, our Lord, O Yahweh, the God who dwells in an approachable light, who is also our God, a God who has a relationship with his people. You know, David here is, is referring to a level of intimacy with God. That the God who is the creator of this universe, the God who dwells in an approachable light, who is so holy that man cannot even enter into his presence, would choose to have a relationship as God, Adonai, our Lord. I want you to stop and think about that for a moment. You know, how amazing is that? How amazing is the fact that God who has no need for us, God who has no, uh, there's no significance that we've got, that the God of this world, the creator of this universe, would choose to have a relationship with us. Even if I could claim that I'm close friends with the most powerful person alive today, that wouldn't come close to the fact that God who is the creator of this universe is our God, is my God. And this is absolutely mind-blowing. You know, for David, you know, this is absolutely mind-blowing as he's, uh, you know, when we read in English, we don't get the essence of what he's actually understanding. This is absolutely mind-blowing because that is why he says later on, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And that first verse there, it, it ends with an exclamation mark. How majestic is your name in all the earth. That's, that is, a, that is an emphatic statement. That's a, that's, like, that's a big title that he's putting there. He's completely blown away by who this God is. And he's saying, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The 
the word majestic used here uh, closely, uh, um, you know, another translation for that would be, uh, it comes from the word pride. Now this way you get the word uh, pride of lions, right? So when you think about lions, you think about Aslan or you know, someone standing, uh, the lion standing, you know, like with all its glory, all its splendor, uh, you know, everything that just says that this lion just is amazing or this lion is just so uh, magnificent. And that is the usage here. So how, how magnificent is your name in all the earth? Now I just want to stop and um, explain the heart of David behind this. David wrote most of, the, a lot of the Psalms is written by David. Most of the Psalms are written by David. And if you think about the relationship that David has with God, it is reflected in the Psalms. It is reflected in the Psalms. You know, when he is struggling, he runs to the Lord, you hear a Psalm. When he is joyful, when he is you know, looking at the Lord and he's thinking about what God has done, he's excited, he, he writes a song to the Lord. When he is anxious, when he's surrounded by his enemies, he writes a song. When he is lamenting, or when he is crying out to the Lord, he writes a song. When he's repenting, when he's confessing, he writes out, cries out to the Lord. What you see in the life of David, uh, which is very unique, and which is why I think Psalms is often used a lot when we, when we read uh, you know, in different circumstances, different situations, is that it is really a reflection of his daily communion with the Lord. You know, and that is such an encouragement for us. Because here you're seeing this is what communion, this is what fellowship with the Lord looks like. As we walk with the Lord, as we turn to Him in prayer, in praise, in confession, in, in, in um, lament. And so if there's one outcome that I like from today's sermon, I, 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 I'm hoping is that we would get that that as we see God's word, we would treasure God himself, that we would see who he is and that we would not just be, yeah, yeah, God is creator, so that's a good thing, or think, oh, that's fantastic, but we would go past that and treasure God himself. And so for today's sermon, we'll look at how David describes God's majesty in the earth. We look at how God works in the earth, in creation, and, and the rest of the passage really is talking about a creation account primarily. And we'll look at two reasons why God's name is to be worshipped. And why God's name is to be glorified. So from verse, second part of verse 1, we'll look at the human weaknesses that God uses for his glory. And in verse 3 to 8, we'll look at the human insignificance that God uses for his glory. Okay, so let's look at, um, continue on in verse 1 as we look at the human weakness for God's glory. And he says... Um, you have set your glory above the heavens out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger so David sets the starting point here so he's going to talk about everything about creation and, and um, God's glory and what he's done in that but he's going to set the starting point Okay, so this all starts with God's glory and this all starts with God's glory in the heavens some Bible scholars have said that the one unifying theme, or many Bible scholars have said one, the one unifying theme, theme in the Bible, if you were to put it into one word or one phrase, would be the glory of God. That is the one unifying theme in the Bible. Ultimately, everything is for the glory of God, and he uses 
the world, the people, everything around him. He creates everything for his glory. Ultimately, it's about the glory of God. You mean everything that we see in creation, everything that we see in the fall of man, everything that we see in salvation, everything that we see in sanctification, what Christ has done, all of that, and ultimately even with glorification, is for the purpose of the glory of God. So what is this glory of God? What does the glory of God mean? It's one of those terms that we use all the time, but it's hard to define sometimes. Uh, And that is true because it is actually trying to describe something about God that our human, finite human minds can't truly comprehend. In simple definition, the glory of God is just, it's talking about the splendor of God. Or uh, if I were to break that down a bit further, if you take everything about God, his character, his essence, his person, his being, his, um, you know, his nature, and you s- everything is perfect, the complete perfectness of God, and you sum them up together. And the splendor and the majesty that comes out of this perfect God is the glory of God. That's another way of looking at it. It's the sum total of the perfections of God. The glory of God is such that God has set it above the heavens. So here David is saying that this glory of God is set above the heavens. Meaning that God has set his glory beyond the realm that you or I can see or comprehend or understand. Now the word heavens is used a few times in this passage, but this particular, uh, in this passage you'll see when he refers to heavens, uh, he's referring to where the birds are, where the sun, where the moon, where the moon, the stars are in the heavens. And, God, and David here says that he set his glory above that, above the universe that is observable and non-observable. Above the heavens, that's where he set his glory. That's where he dwells. That's where he exists. And his glory is such that Isaiah tells us that, you know, the seraphim covered their faces with their wings. They covered their feet with their wings in the, glory, in the, in the presence of God. That was the, the might and the splendor of his glory. You think of, you know, I, I, I don't think words will do justice, but think of someone who has really achieved something and is beaming with, you know, joy and achievement and things, and people are all in awe of who this person is, what this person has done. They're applauding and clapping and cheering this person on. Uh, that, that doesn't, you know, compare to what the glory of God is. But that's what it's like. His glory is so that it just beams out that the seraphims have to cover their faces and their feet. In Revelation 21, 23, when seeing the vision about new heaven and earth, John writes this, he says, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamb is a lamb. But we know that the glory of God is not just about the heavens, because in Numbers 14, 21, it says, But as truly as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled, truly as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of God. And so this is the starting point, that God sets his glory above the heavens, but then also his glory is displayed in this earth. And David continues on to explain how that looks like. So he reminds us here that God's glory is supernaturally expressed out of the mouth of babies and infants. He says, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Now the word uh, babies and infants are very closely related. The word babies is just referring to babies or some people have said young child. Um, And the word infants is referring to someone who is 
a, a, a child that is nursing that requires to be fed. In both cases, a baby and a, uh, a baby is someone who's, uh, you know, or a young child is someone who's completely dependent on others for their needs. Uh, and, a, and an infant who is a nursing infant is even more so completely dependent on others for their needs. They're the weakest members of our society since they are absolutely dependent on somebody else for their very exist survival. And it is them that David says is out of the mouth of such weak babies, God establishes strength. Now the word for strength used here is more reference to uh, fortification, like you know you were defending against uh, somebody. Now, so what does babies have to do with strength? What does babies have to do with strength? What do babies have to do with Avengers? What do babies have to do with enemies? Uh, what do the weakest members of our society have to do with any of that, that God would use them? Now it's interesting because uh, I looked at the uniqueness of babies and came across some facts that are quite interesting that talk about the development of babies. For example, babies are quick on all fours because they don't have kneecaps. And they are born uh, without them that develop later on in life. And that allows them to move while their legs are not developed. Um, they can breathe in more air than an adult. Uh, they can breathe faster and therefore have more volume of air per minute than an adult does. Uh, their taste buds are more developed than adults and that's the reason why they're constantly putting things in their mouth because that's how they explore the world around them. Uh, they can um, drink and breathe at the same time, although I s I've, I've seen that people have different opinions about that, but certainly uh, there seems to be some element of them being able to breathe and drink at the same time. Uh, or at least too close to each other that adults can't do, um, so that they can actually uh, be nursed and be fed. They're born with the ability and instinct to swim in water, um, and many more facts. But you see, what David here is saying is that um, God has established strength through babies by creating them with the ability to survive and grow and develop in a way that is unique to that stage of life. God cares for the weakest, the weakest member of our society, the weakest um, member of um, humankind to show his glory. As we will progressively see that Psalm 8 is, has, a, has a prophetic side to it as well. Like I said at the start, that it is used, it's quoted in the New Testament a few times. And one of the instances is in Matthew 21 verses 12 to 6. Now I'm not going to read that, but... Um, um, what you see is that uh, the context of it is that Jesus is in the temple. He goes in the temple and he sees all these money lenders and money changers and businessmen who are greedily making money in the temple by selling things uh, to those that have come to worship God. And he goes in and he clears out the temple. He drives them out of the temple. And he said, the, you know, the house of prayer is, you know, don't defile the house of prayer. And he drives them out of the temple. And the priests and the you know, chief priests and the scribes and all that are not happy about it. The leaders of the, the, the temple are not happy about it. And on top of that, what he does is, um, you see, Jesus starts to heal those that are blind, heal those that are lame. Now, these are, uh, these are people who are considered as uh, those who are cursed by God and were not uh, culturally permitted to enter the temple. They were looked down upon. The weak members of society were looked down upon as those who disobeyed God and therefore they were cursed by God. And so uh, here you see these people coming into the temple, the very place that these leaders didn't want these people to come and Jesus is healing them. 
And then he continues on. If that didn't infuriate them enough, you start to see that the children that were in the courtyard and the temple uh, start singing um, a, a song. Um, it's a messianic song um, talking about uh, the coming Messiah. And as they do that, they're proclaiming that Jesus is Messiah. By now, these leaders are furious. They're indignant. And it is to that response, or in their indignation, they look at Jesus and say, look at these children who are singing. And it is to that that Jesus responds and says, out of the mouth of babies or infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. What Jesus really does is he silences them because then you don't hear any response back from them after that. And then Jesus just continues on. Because they knew these were learned men. These were scholars of um, you know, the Torah. These were men who knew exactly what the word of God said about the coming Messiah. But yet they couldn't see him. And it took little children in the courtyard to see what Jesus was doing to recognize that the Messiah was here. And that is why Jesus says, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have prepared praise. Our Bible reading from 1 Corinthians 1 verse 27 to 28 reminds us that God chose the foolish in the world to shame the wise, the weak in the world to shame the strong. See, God does not need our wisdom. He doesn't need our intellect. He doesn't need our strength for his purposes and for his glory. Think about it. He uses little children for the praise of his name. He uses little children for the purposes of bringing glory to himself because that is the end goal. Everything that we do is all about the glory of God and he can use a little child for that. He doesn't need us. But you know, if you think about it in terms of just application, but sometimes we almost feel like we need to have a certain level of accomplishment. We need to have a certain level of, um, you know, accolades and intellect and certain level of skill to be able to uh, bring glory to God, to be able to serve Him, to be able to honor Him. You know, for example, you know, and we often hear this in terms of evangelism, you know, to say that, oh, you know, I don't, I, I don't feel like I know I'm an evangelist. I don't have the gift of evangelism. Or, you know, I don't know how to, you know, um, you know go and evangelize to someone. It's a very hard task. Well, evangelism is nothing other than telling others what Jesus has done. It's basically going back to the basic one-on-one message of Christianity. He doesn't need our intellect. He doesn't need our skills or abilities or eloquent speech as, as we read this morning. If he can use babies and infants to declare his glory, how much more will he use us? If he created weak and insignificant people to bring, us glory, to bring him glory, then all he needs for us is to be obedient to him, to be submissive to him. And to see and to observe that he uses us. Not that we can be prideful, but we can be thankful that he uses weak people. Should never be a moment that we think that we've got it all. Because it all comes back to, no, it's the work of God in our lives. And so even as a church and everything that we do, what we exist is not for ourselves. It's not for our pride. It's not for our fame. It's not for our own um, uh, 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 self-proclamation. It is for the glory of God. Moving on to the second point. um, That's the end of the first point. We move on to the second point, 
which is from verse 3 to verse 8, where we see how God uses human insignificance in creation for his glory. So we see the weakness of babies. Now we'll see the weakness of man, or particularly the insignificance of man. And he starts in verse 3 and he says, uh, you know, David's here observing uh, you know, the creation account of God in the next few verses. And he says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, or which you have set in place. Now this psalm is also called, some people have called this the astronomer's psalm because it is likely that David's, you know, he's in his palace or he's in his courtyard or wherever he is, he's, he's looking out in the sky and, and, uh, and he's, when he says, when I look at your heavens, so he's certainly looking at the sky and the heavens or whatever he can observe. Um, and the idea here is not just glancing. The idea is he's carefully looking and he's studying, which is why some people call the astronomer's psalm. He's made careful observation about uh, the sky. It's the idea that he spent time gazing into the sky. So I'm, I don't know if he was interested in stars and um, um, astronomy or not, but uh, certainly there's an element where he's not just glanced at it, he's actually carefully observed it. And he says, um, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars. You know, Psalm 19 verse 1 uh, says, it reminds us that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky shows his handiwork. You see, David, when he says, uh, you know, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, it is almost the idea of an artist painting the sky. It's the idea of an artist beautifully painting a masterpiece. David is amazed. He's looked at the sky. He's amazed at the masterpiece painted by God in the sky. Or that's how at least he perceives it to be. It is amazing how, you know, at times when you actually um, see some natural wonder and some natural beauty, our heart is automatically drawn to the, the how picture-perfect things are, uh, the artistic nature of God's creation. And moving on, it's not just the artistic beauty of God's creation, but David also reminds us that God sets these objects in place. See, he says, um, when I look at your he- heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. The idea of using set in place is as the word says. It's basically, he's saying that God has positioned them in place. So not not only has he painted the beautiful picture on the sky, and he's marveling at the artistic work of God, but he's marveling at even the practicality that God has actually set things in place the way they are, the way they're meant to be, in their exact same location that God has ordained them to be. In Genesis 1, 14 to 19, uh, we see that God set, um, you know, um, uh, things in place. And he didn't just place them haphazardly. He says in, verse, in Genesis 1, 14 to 19, we see that God set the moon in the sky to be a light at night, distinguished between day and night. And we think about the moon further in Numbers 28. The ch- in, the, in that chapter, we see the, uh, the children of Israel celebrating a different feast depending on the moon. They would look at the moon and the face of the moon and determine that every month they had a feast at a certain day, a certain time. I mean, even looking at it um, scientifically, um, you know, the, the proper functioning of the moon is required for controlling tides. And the controlling of tides allows for the movement of water, especially in coastal areas where warm and cold waters meet that is essential for breeding grounds for um, sea life. The gravity of the moon contributes towards the stable rotation and tilt of the earth. If you think about the stars, they play a critical role in uh, time and season as well, which I didn't know. 
I was critical for navigation both on land and sea. So David here is observing that God is not just in his beauty created things, but he set things in their place for their own functions, their own purposes. The world that we live in, we think about the moon, the, the, uh, I suppose the, the solar system, and then we zoom out a bit more and we see everything's in place, the sun, the moon, the stars, everything. But as you start zooming out, we realize that, hang on, there's more than that. We're just a tiny speck in the solar system. We're not even the biggest planet. And then you realize we're part of a galaxy, which in turn is part of billions of, or trillions of galaxies as they've discovered in the last few years. And David here is saying that God set each one of those heavenly objects in place. The ones that we can see and the ones that we can't even see, the ones that we can't even observe that's beyond uh, our imagination. Can you see the glory and the majesty of God as David describes it here? It's the glory and majesty of God at display. Can you see the awesomeness of God here? And it is in the backdrop of this amazing moment of observation that David is filled with just awe and adoration. And he says, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? He's recognized that this God is so amazing, so mighty, so powerful, so great. He created all these things that just is mind-blowing. And then he says, He looks at himself. He sees the reality of man. He sees the insignificance of man. And he says, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. The word mindful used is in reference to God's covenant love for his people. We see the word used in that same sense in Genesis 8 verse 1 when God remembered Noah. We see that in Genesis 18 when God remembered Abraham and he uh, saved Lot. It, It has nothing to do with Abraham's righteousness but to do with God's covenant with his people. You see, God is not just mindful to us in a casual way but he's committed to us. Moving on, uh, David reminds us and, uh, that you know, God is mindful to us in a way that is intimate, that is so, uh, he's interested in what, uh, how we're doing, and which is why he says, you know, God doesn't just mind us, but he cares for us. He says, what is the son of man that you care for him? Now the word son of man in this context is uh, talking about man in general. Now, this is just a repetition of uh, the, the, the word uh, man from the previous, uh, the, the start of the verse. And like I said at the start, the repetition of ideas in terms of like babies and infants and enemy and avenger and Lord and Lord. Now, the word son of man, as we know in the New Testament and from Daniel 6, is talking about Jesus Christ. But it's also used in the context of just talking about men in certain instances as well. And uh, this particularly is talking about men. And... Um, Uh, And so David here reminds us that God cares for man. The word care seems to be more concerned about. It's about being mindful. It is the next step from being mindful. It's it's God's uh, benevolent care and love for his people. In some translations, the word care is also translated as visit and is used to show God's care and concern for man in such a way 
that he would visit his people. We see this word being used in Genesis 21, where God visits Sarah and blesses her with a son. We see in Genesis God visiting Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It's in the same way that it's used in this passage, where God visits uh, man to have fellowship with him, to, uh, to be benevolent, to show his care and to show his love for him. I just want to stop and remind you that the care that God has for man. Can you imagine that the God who is the creator of this universe, who has no need to be mindful of us, who has no need to be um, caring of us, would stoop down, would stoop down to um, care and to mind us. And the fact that you woke up this morning and are alive uh, is because of God's care uh, towards us. The fact that you drove to church this morning and didn't get into an accident is because of his care towards us. Can you see his greatness, his glory, his love, and his care for us? And I hope that this compels us to adore him, to worship him for what he has done and what he continues to do in our lives. Moving on to verse 5, he says, Yet you have made him a little lower than heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Now, um, David starts with the word um, yet. Now, that's a beautiful word here because even though um, you know, man is insignificant and man is worthless, we will see that later on as we see, we'll see that he's got significance, he's got worth because of what God has given to him. And that's why he says, yet man. So, you know, God is so mighty, so God is so powerful and God cares for us, yet it doesn't stop just there. He goes on further that God has continued, it's like he's progressively uh, talking about what God has done now, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You see, in the world that we live in, and in, uh, looking at that, how we've been created, the world that we live in, we are told that, you know, we're taught that you know, man is nothing more than a clump of cells that has no inherent value, that's nothing, n- not more valuable than an animal or a beast of the field. But the word of God here reminds us that, no, actually, it's not that. We're not just a little bit better than animals or a little bit more evolved from monkeys, but that we are lower than, we were created lower than heavenly beings. It's a stark contrast. We were created a little lower than heavenly beings. The word for heavenly beings is also translated in some translations as angels. Uh, the Hebrew word for that is used there as Elohim. It's also translated for God. But particularly in this case, it's talking about angels. Now, we are not only made a a little lower than angels, David says he, but we are crowned with glory and honor. So God is mindful of us. He cares for us. He creates us, so he makes us a little lower than angels, and he now crowns us with glory and honor. See, God's glory in heaven is being reflected through man as God crowns him with glory and honor. The word crowned here has the idea of um, you know, bestowing upon someone uh, a privilege or uh, you know, in, in recently we witnessed the death of a queen, the crowning of a king uh, and, and doing the coronation process or the crowning process, uh, you know, the person who gets crowned um, gets bestowed with honor and glory and power and responsibilities. 
And so it is in that sense that David is saying that you know, you've created him a little lower than angels, but you've crowned him also with, and you've crowned him with uh, glory and honor. Why is that? Why does God crown his people with glory and honor? Because we were created, again, to be a reflection of the glory of God. Everything in creation ultimately points to the glory of God. It starts, it begins with the glory of God, it ends with the glory of God. The purpose of our very existence is the glory of God. And the reason why God has crowned him with glory and honor is for his glory. And in crowning man with God's glory, uh, he allows us to reflect his glory. In the same way that the moon reflects the light from the sun. Now the word honor used here is in reference to dignity, meaning that not only has God crowned us with glory so that we can reflect his glory, but he has also given us honor, which is where our value and our worth as human beings come from. You see, as Christians, we value every life. We value all living, um, we value human life because the very worth and dignity and value that every single life has comes from God. This extends to life in the womb, in that babies in the womb have value regardless of how weak or deformed or inconvenient or uh, how they may be, because their value is not determined by me, it's not determined by you, it's not determined by our society or even their circumstances, but their value is determined by God who created them and crowned them with glory and honor. This is the same reason why we are to treat one another with respect and care and love because each one of us are beings that are made in the image of God and crowned with glory and honor. And this impacts the way we view one another as well. Because you know, when we live in the world, we often are influenced by different ideas of how we view one another. Even as Christians, sometimes we can often view one another um, outside of how God views us and outside of how God sees us. We can show love, we can show partiality, we can, um, we can show favoritism, we can um, treat one another uh, in a way that is unloving because we fail to recognize the value and the worth that God has placed on each one of us. We have to remember that it is God who gives us our value. Our value and our worth and our, uh, uh, anything that we can identify does not come from how wealthy I am. It doesn't come from how intellectual I am. It doesn't come from how much well-placed I am in society. But it comes from the very fact that it is God who crowns us with honor and glory. Now, even though God crowned us with glory and honor and created man perfectly, um, man failed. We see God created Adam perfectly. There was, everything was good, and God saw that it was good, and yet we see Adam failing. Romans 3.23 reminds us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, meaning that not just Adam, but everyone since Adam has sinned and thus failed in reflecting the glory of God. Everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But even though we messed up, there is hope. The psalm uh, that we're looking at today, as I mentioned, has a prophetic aspect to it in talking about uh, Jesus Christ and what he has done. And in Hebrews 2, 9 to 10, the writer says this about Jesus. He says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, 
crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. You see, even though we messed up badly in sin, we failed badly, God didn't let us go. God came down to this earth in the form of a man by sending his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He took human form. He lived a perfect and obedient life and perfectly reflected the glory of God in absolute perfect obedience. The perfect sacrifice. Jesus died on the cross for sinners like you and me. And it is through the death of Jesus Christ that he ultimately paid the price that you and I could never hope to pay the punishment of our sins, as we remember this morning. If you're here this morning and do not know Jesus, I hope you would see his sacrificial love, the care, the love that he has for us, that he created us in his image to be image bearers of him, to bring him glory and honor, which we lost because of sin. But that there is hope through Jesus Christ. You know, we, we can often find, like I said earlier, we can find our significance in, in the things of this world, in, in our job, in our income, in our wealth, and our status. But this is why we need to run to the cross daily, because if we don't run to the cross daily, we will find our significance in the things of the world. We need to be running to the cross daily. We need to be, in, we need to be running to the word. We need to be in prayer we need to be in fellowship with the Lord daily. Because if we don't do that, um, the wisdom of the world takes over and we start finding our identity in the things of the world. We find our value and our worth in what the world determines our worth and value to be. And this is one of the reasons why we need each other as a church body as well. The reason why we admonish one another, the reason why we encourage one another, the reason why we live deep, committed, accountable, responsible relationships is so that when we forget, when we struggle, when we are encouraged, when we are growing, we can keep pointing each other back to God and thus reflect His glory. Moving on in verse 6, he says, you have not just crowned man with honor and glory, but it says you have given him dominion over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet. You see, when God crowned man with glory and honor, along with it came dominion and rule over the creation of this world. In Genesis 1, 28 we see God saying, let us make man in our image. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the air. Uh, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God made man in his own image, the image of God. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And he blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. David here is amazed by the fact that God would create man and elevate him to have dominion over all things. I mean, he just started off with saying, what is man that you're mindful of him? And now God has elevated him to a point of giving him, not just crowning him with glory and honor, but now as a result of that crowning, to give him dominion over the things of this world, 
See, God created man to exercise dominion over all things. But as one commentator says, um, the reality is that not all things are under man's feet. Not all things are under man's feet. The fact that tsunamis and earthquakes and floods kill thousands of people shows that man does not have all things under his feet. The fact that mosquitoes kill a million people every year and snakes and wild animals kill hundreds of thousands of people every year show that man does not have things under his feet. Why is that? Because of sin. Hebrews 2, 5 to 9, uh, again, reiterates the point, in, uh, particularly in verse 9, he says, um, verse um, 9, he says, at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So he's quoting this exact same psalm and he's uh, referencing the fact that even though God created man to be, um, have exercise dominion over all things and to have everything under his feet, yet we do not see everything in subjection to him. And that's because of sin. And that's because sin caused us to lose dominion that we were supposed to exercise. In Romans 1, and 23, Paul says, claiming to be wise, talks about what sin does to us. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. And this is what sin does. The very creatures that man was created to exercise dominion over, they became gods. They exchanged the glory of an immortal God for images resembling man, birds, animals and creeping things. We were created to exercise dominion over sheep and oxen, which is, you know, domestic animals, the beasts of the field, wild animals, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and whatever passes along the paths of the sea. But we lost that because of sin. And because of uh, our own sin, we lost our ability to exercise that dominion. We, We lost everything from under our feet. But we have hope through Jesus Christ. Because he has all things under his feet because of what he has done. The perfect sacrifice, the son of God who lived that perfect life and because of his death and because of his reign and his rule, his defeat of sin, he now has everything put under his feet. We read from Ephesians 1, 20 to 22. It says, in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he says, and he put all things under his feet. As we come to the conclusion of this passage, I just want to summarize what David has been talking about so far. He begins by worshipping and declaring God's majesty and splendor through all the earth. Then he starts with God's glory and it is reflected through his creation and how it is reflected through his creation. He reminds us that God uses the weakness of babies to reflect his glory. He reminds us that God uses the insignificance of man to reflect his glory and he describes this progressively. He says God, you know, he minds God God is mindful of man. He cares for man. He has created man a little lower than angels. He has crowned him with glory and honor. He has given man dominion over the works of his hands and has put all things under his feet. But the reality is that that's talking about a creation account. That's how God created us to be, but because of sin, we lost that. 
We lost the ability to reflect God the way he created us to be. But for Christ. And that is the beauty of this passage. This actually is talking not just of God's glory in creation, but eventually talking about one day all things will be restored. That we will be able to reflect God's glory exactly the way he created us to be when we are with Christ ultimately as he rules and reigns over everything as every knee bows and confesses that Jesus is Lord and we will rule with him and so in as much as this psalm is a reminder of what God intended in creation it is a reminder of the hope that we have in Christ that all things will be made right you see David sees all these things He sees that there is a perfect son of man that is coming that will save the world. And he's so joyful about it. And that's why he concludes and he says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Even as we conclude, I just want to remind you that, like I said at the start, our response to who God is, is really counts. You see, all the knowledge that we have about God and what he has done, as we just read, all the theology that we know about God counts for nothing if we do not respond to God in adoration and worship and praise. Because that is what David is doing here. As he starts and ends with the statement, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You see, when God created us as beings, he created us as beings of worship. Not that we would just be amazed at the things of God, but that he would be our end treasure, that he would be our end prize, and he would be our end goal. That he would be the object of worship. Because that's what we were created for. That's what we are called to do. And guess what? When we go to heaven, that's what we will be doing as we worship at his feet. And thanks be to God that he uses insignificant creatures like us for his glory. Let's pray together. Alone, Henny Father, we just want to thank you for um, just the reminder that you really don't need us and that you have no need to do anything with us, to interact with us or to love us or to care for us, and yet that you would stoop down to show your love towards us, that you would show and reveal your glory, that you would call us to be as people who are worshippers of you that we could have fellowship with you, that we can have a relationship with you. And we thank you for how you have revealed yourself in that regard through how you've used weak, weakness for your glory. Lord, even as we uh, go this week, we ask that you would help us to uh, run to you, run to the cross, to trust in what God is doing and what you have done for us. So we give you all the praise, all the glory. In your name we pray.